Hello and welcome back to Clock Spinning, the podcast of Magic's history as told card by card. I'm Austin and with me as always is Connor. How are you today, Connor? You know, I am much better than I have been recently. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was in the hospital with meningitis uh, and I'm back home feeling good now, so I cannot complain. Oh, I'm glad you're uh, back home and feeling good. For those who don't know, meningitis is a kind of brain infection and not the kind that makes for a fun black aura. <laughs> no, it <laughs> definitely isn't. But I am I am glad to be back talking about uh, some wonderful Kamigawa cards. Yep. Yeah, as Connor is nodding out, we are back in the Kamigawa saddle today. Um, for those of you who are joining us uh, more recently, this show started with a card-by-card review of Champions of Kamigawa, and we are building a cube uh, out of Kamigawa block. And we'll talk more about the cube and its goals in a second, and Kamigawa block and betrayers and so on. But if all of that sounds like way too much preamble and you just want to skip ahead to the card-by-card review of betrayers of Kamigawa... Uh, if you just check your show notes, either on YouTube or your podcast app, there should be a timestamp there where you can just jump straight ahead to our first card, Day of Destiny, if uh, if you don't want to hear the preamble. Absolutely. But if you do want to hear the preamble and just a little bit about the second set in Kamigawa block, we're going to just kind of intro a little bit about Betrayers. So Betrayers of Kamigawa is set number two in the Kamigawa block. Of course, we talked about champions already. Uh, now we're starting Betrayers, and it comes back with all of the kind of classic Things that we love about Kamigawa. Uh, Every rare creature in Betrayers is a legend. Uh, We've got plenty of spirits or kami. We have arcane spells and splice onto arcane cards. Uh, We've got the various iconic mortal tribes like Kitsune and Nezumi, uh, Orochi, the snakes, uh, samurai. We've got it all. Uh, And in Betrayers, we have a very special uh, additional creature type, which is very well-loved uh we have ninjas yeah i think it's fair to say ninjas are uh probably the best remembered thing from the set apart from perhaps umizawa's jite uh this is back from a time when uh, magic blocks were three sets long uh which always created a problem for wizards of like how do you differentiate the first second and third set and usually their for their approach was to have the first set introduce the plane and its theme have the second set build on that and maybe add a little bit more and then have the third set jog in kind of a weird direction just to keep people interested, uh, which honestly was a pattern that didn't work super well. <laughs> maybe we'll talk about that some other time. Um, but in this case, Betrayers largely builds on champions, but as as you're saying, it adds some cool themes like ninjutsu, some uh, a lot of cycles. It adds key counters. It adds the offering mechanic. Um, it adds the shoal cycle. So layers in lots and lots of cycles. Uh, and uh, most importantly, honestly, ninjas. Um, I, we keep talking about ninjas, but honestly, they are probably the coolest part of the set. Although, unfortunately, we won't get to talk about any today because there are no white ninjas. Oh, sadly, there are not. There are plenty of, of blue and black ninjas that we're excited about, like Ink Eyes, Servant of Oni, Ninja of the Deep Hours. Uh, actually, just a lot of cool blue and black cards generally. Uh, so stick with us as we get to blue and black. Uh, but today we're just going to be covering the first half of white in Betrayers. So that is a total of 15 cards. Uh, Betrayers was a small set. Uh, it had, I think, oh golly, I should have had this number to hand. It had... 165 cards so quite a small set by modern standards and uh i think it's fair to say that white is i shouldn't be saying this since our job is to get you all interested and excited about these cards but white is probably not the most exciting color in the set uh it struggles in the way that uh, white does in a lot of sets of this era where there's a lot of damage prevention a lot of life gain 
um, and maybe struggling a little bit for an identity. But there are some really cool cards mixed in here. Some iconic cards like Final Judgment, uh, Opal Eye, Kentaro, The Smiling Cat, Hokori, Dust Drinker, Day of Destiny. And if you don't know all those cards, great. Uh, stick with us because our hope here is to surface interesting, uh, unique cards that you may not have heard of. And maybe they'll find a home in your cube, uh, in some EDH deck, or, or just in your memory. And as you've just heard, they all have really great names. So at the very least, these cards have that going for them. That is absolutely the consistent highlight across Kamigawa block, isn't it? Like no matter how bad the cards are, how misguided some of the design is, like the names are just, just bangers. Every other card has some totally awesome name. Absolutely. So uh, one quick reminder about the cube, if you're a new listener to the show. So we are building a cube of the original Kamigawa block. Uh, and usually when people talk about that, what they talk about is building a set cube. That is a cube whose goal is to emulate the original draft retail environment. Uh, and that is not our goal. Our goal here is to build an interesting draft environment that appeals to our tastes, that evokes the memories of Kamigawa block, that evokes the feel of the block. But we're not trying to be bound by original Kamigawa design too tightly. So if a card is really bad, we'll just cut it. And we'll talk more about that rating system in a second. If a card is really cool, we might amp up the quantity above what you would see in an original retail uh, environment. The uh, mana fixing in this block is brutally bad. And so we brought in some lands from outside the block. And so our goal here is something is to build a cube that's opinionated and interesting and fun to play uh, that still evokes lots of play patterns and stuff uh, that are reminiscent of the original block. So you alluded just now to how we're going to be rating these cards and kind of deciding which ones we want to have in the cube, how many we want, how much we like or maybe hate the cards. Uh, and we'll be doing that using our patent eligible impab rating system. And Connor is a patent attorney. And so um, this is patent eligible, right, Connor? This, this is true. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely patent eligible. <laughs> okay. Yeah, great. So impab is an acronym, which stands for Instacut, Meh, Playable, Auto-Include, and build around. So we'll be giving every card we talk about one of these ratings. And in some cases, if we keep the card in, we'll talk about how many copies we want, because as Austin mentioned, this is not a singleton cube. We have some cards that we you know, want to see a little bit more of. So just to quickly go through each of those different categories, uh, Instacut pretty much speaks for itself. These are cards that we're just cutting right away. We know we don't want them in the cube because they're too weak or too specific. Uh, we just don't want them. Meh cards are not great. And that's going to be true of probably a lot of cards in Kamigawa block, uh, but they're not necessarily awful. Uh, we may want these for certain niche situations or just as a, a later draft pick maybe. Um, so that's meh. Playable cards are generally playable in most circumstances. So there's certain cards in Kamigawa block. Uh, one that comes to mind that we've talked about a lot is Kitsune Blademaster that are just pretty good, solid cards, even by maybe more modern standards. Uh, so playable is kind of the category that that sort of card is going to fit into. Auto-include cards, these are things that we know we want to have in the cube. Um, so these are cards that may be especially iconic in kind of the story or flavor of the set, or just cards that we really have a soft spot for or know that we want to have in. Uh, maybe they represent or kind of hold up a particular archetype that we want to see in the cube, or they're just really good cards or cards that we want to see coming up in draft. And then finally, we have build around. And this is kind of the, the trickiest category and probably the, the least common one. So build around cards are, as the name suggests, cards that need a little bit more support, maybe kind of 
a fun combo piece or could be part of a really interesting deck, but may or may not work depending on what else ends up in kind of the final version of the cube. So build around cards are ones that we find really interesting, but we're not quite sure if the rest of the cube is going to support them. Yeah. And if you want to see uh, each of those ratings, for example, from past episodes, uh, if you go to clockspinning.com, we've got a link there to the cube on Cube Cobra, and you can see kind of how the cube is evolving. You can see the ratings we've given each card that we've rated already. You can give the cube a test draft if you do. Uh, that's awesome. Let us know. We'd love to see those test drafts. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the cube, what cards you hated, what things didn't make sense to you. Uh, so check out clockspinning.com if you're curious to see the cube, or uh, if you want to subscribe to the show, if you're just listening for the first time uh, and you're liking what you uh, I've heard so far you can find links there to your favorite podcast app or to YouTube if you prefer to listen there. Um, the YouTube videos are not uh, super sophisticated, but we do have a, a picture of each card come up at the appropriate time. So you can see the cards uh, in a convenient fashion. For sure. Austin uh, did some some great work there to get all those cards to pop up. I don't know. But it's it's I did a very messy, ugly bash script, and I hope none of my programmer friends ever see it. But, it, you know, it works. So it, whatever, whatever works. <laughs> One other note on that is as I you're sort of joining us midstream if this is your first episode. Uh, as I said, we reviewed all of Champions Kamigawa. And so if you want to go back and listen to 22 hours of content about that, you're welcome to. Uh, but don't feel obligated. If you just want to dive in here, uh, it's not necessary. Although I would maybe recommend that Kamigawa White episode if you're curious to know more about the block, because we go much deeper into the history of the block and the design and where it fits in Magic's history, if that's interesting to you. For sure. Well, should we uh, dive into the first 15 White cards of Betrayers of Kamigawa? Yeah, I'm glad to be doing it. Let's go. All right, well, I'm leading us off here with Day of Destiny. Day of Destiny is three and a W for a legendary enchantment. Legendary creatures you control get plus two, plus two. This is just a really cool card. Um, one of the things that's cool and somewhat unique about it in this era of magic is that it says legendary creatures you control, which uh, we're still at a stage in magic's history where most lords and a lot of anthem effects help everybody. And so it's kind of refreshing to have one that doesn't lead to the weird play problems that a lot of those old anthem effects create, where the board just turns into a giant stall because you're both doing something similar. Uh, this card itself is interesting and I think tough to rate. Uh, on the one hand, um, the hit rate here is pretty poor. I was just taking a glance at the cube as it exists right now. About a third of our creatures are legends. That's not a terrible hit rate, but it's not great. Like plus two, plus two is a big stat boost. But then if you think about like just a generic cube environment, Glorious Anthem and other generic Anthem effects like that or Spear of Heliod are generally pretty lousy in cube. Like three mana is just too much. Four mana is extra too much. Uh, and if you just kind of do the math and assume that like a third of your team is going to be legends, this basically says plus 0.67 plus 0.67 or something like that. Um, like this is just not, uh, this card just doesn't really get there on rate for me. I still have it a meh because the art is awesome and the effect is kind of super Kamigawa-ish and it's a cool card, but I don't think it's a particularly good one. Yeah. I mean, flavor wise, this is an awesome card to to open with. You've got this epic name, Day of Destiny. It's a legendary enchantment, uh, which is, you know, at this point in Magic, kind of a, a new thing. And the the art is, you know, Takeno, the the samurai general who uh, leads under Konda, who's like the big, sort of the big villain uh, in the story of the set, leading this charge with his his hound next to him. It's it's all super cool, but I agree that the card itself is probably not 
too great. Yeah, you mentioned in your notes here, the flavor text is pretty cool too. Do you want to read it? Oh yeah, uh, it says, rise like the sun, stand like the mountain, charge like the lion, die as a hero. And that's quoting General Takeno, who's in the art uh, with the dog, which I think must be Isamaru. Oh man, that's cool too. Card yeah. from Champion. So yeah, there's all this this awesome flavor tie in here. I I don't know how <laughs> how much the card is actually gonna uh, help you achieve a day of destiny. Yeah, it does. I I had this in a meb, but to me, I almost wonder: is this a build around? Is this just like, hey, if you want to try for legendary tribal, there's a payoff. I think part of the problem is there's a payoff, right? There's not like that many cards in the block that really pay you off for playing legends, so it's it's a little tricky, even as a build around. Well, the the last card that we'll talk about in this episode is also kind of legendary tribal, Yomiji, who bars the way. So yeah. I kind of like yeah, that, okay. actually. That's two. So yeah, you've got your white legendary tribal with uh, two cards. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Um, hmm. I mean, it feels it would feel wrong to just cut this immediately. So I kind of like build around. All right. Let, let's give it a build around 1x. That feels right. Because yeah, I agree. Just cutting something this cool and this Kamigawa-ish just feels wrong. All right. Let's do it. Uh, it doesn't see a ton of EDH play from what I can tell, which uh, I kind of get because EDH is not really about this. Uh, but it does see some marginal play in like Arvad and other kind of Legends Matter uh, commanders. This is the first card in the episode, and I'm already dunking on Commander Color Identity. So uh, put one in the uh, bingo card for that. <laughs> but I, I have a Reiki History of Kamigawa commander deck. I sure wish I could put this in there because that would be so thematic. But alas, it doesn't work out. Yeah, I I, I love that. The majority of the top commanders that show up for Day of Destiny on EDH Rec are either Yoshimaru, Ever Faithful, or a partner of Yoshimaru. Uh, Yoshimaru is this one mana, one one legendary dog. Uh, just this adorable little dog sitting on a throne that says, Whenever another legendary permanent enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one, plus one counter on Yoshimaru. <laughs> and I just love the idea of Yoshimaru having his Day of Destiny. <laughs> I love that too. And isn't Yoshimaru like uh, canonically a descendant of Isamaru? I'm pretty sure. It's got to be, right? That checks out. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Build round one? Yep. Okay. So Austin gets to start with Day of Destiny. I start with Empty Shrine Kanushi. <laughs> one white mana for a 1-1 human cleric. Empty Shrine Kanushi has protection from the colors of permanence you control. <sighs> uh, this, this card just is is immediately going to kind of the the worst things about Kamigawa super weak creature uh with an almost i think irrelevant ability because it's such a small body like a, a one mana one one is just not doing anything in Kamigawa limited i don't think and giving him protection mm -hmm. doesn't really do much either even if you are able to you know give him protection from colors that your opponent is actually playing which is by no means guaranteed yeah, it's kind of, there's not really any good auras or power toughness boosting auras in the set anyway. One of the few that I think is marginal is like Indomitable Will, a white one. Uh, but of course, ironically, Empty Shrine Kanushi can't wear it because he gets protection from white. So <laughs> yeah, I, this is just a super, super awkward design. Yeah, I mean, what are you supposed to do with this guy? Yeah, it's one of those cards that kind of really, to me, it's like someone thought, well, this is cool that we can do this in the rules. You know what I mean? It's like an intellectually fun design. But then when you start kind of taking it apart, it's like, well, what do you, like, you can't build a deck around this. Like, just in what environment is this card interesting? Or, you know, does this lead to interesting play patterns? It's just really hard to, hard to see. 
Yeah. And, and like, like with a lot of Kamigawa cards, it just, it doesn't feel like it's worth the brain power to think about where this could possibly fit into anything because the payoff is not going to be there. Yeah. I also think you're a little easy on it uh, in terms of the art. Cause I, uh, I think his expression super lame. It's just, it's just super, I guess, derpy for one better word. I just, I don't really like the art much either. So the only thing I like about the art, it, it, shows uh i guess this cleric sitting here with his his eyes closed and uh a derpy facial expression and his his hands are kind of reaching out and there's these three origami birds flying around him one of them is white one of them is blue one of them is green um do you think so those relate these... to the colors of magic connor i uh, i don't i don't know there's no way for us to tell <laughs> So he's got these obviously bant origami birds flying around him. And I, I kind of like how on the nose that is. It's fun that they're just allied colors. Like instead of all five, it's just yeah. white and it's allies instead of yeah. the enemies. That is, that is kind of cute. So it's, yeah, it's, it's the Kanushi's buddy colors that are with him. All right. I did find one mildly interesting thing to say about this from, I don't know, like where, where even was this? Like some Reddit comment uh, where someone was taking Empty Shrine Kanushi. Okay, you finding this? Following this so far? Mm-hmm. Making it colorless with Ursat's gnomes. Okay. Uh, and then enchanting it with Mantle of the Ancients, which I think just creates some kind of loop where it the Mantle of the Ancients lands on the thing and then comes back to the thing over and over uh, for reasons I can't really explain. But if you're a rules nut, go, go look that up. That seems sort of marginally interesting although honestly i i didn't i didn't really bother to understand it fully so i don't know that it's that interesting <laughs> i'm glad we're talking about it here but it, basically you can lock the game down into an infinite loop with just a mantle of the ancients on empty on a colorless empty shrine kanushi it will just keep resurrecting the mantle forever okay. so yeah, that's that's fun so that's cool cool um is this is this an instacut cotter this or? is an instacut for me yeah, okay. With with extreme prejudice, I think. Get it out. All right. Let's talk about Faithful Squire. All right. This is our first flip card of the set, so bear with me. There's going to be a lot of rules text. Faithful Squire. One WW creature, human, soldier. Two, two. Whenever you cast a spirit or arcane spell, you may put a key counter on Faithful Squire. That's K-I. At the beginning of the end step, if there are two or more key counters on Faithful Squire, you may flip it. And then it flips into Kaiso Memory of Loyalty. It's a legendary spirit, 3-4, flying. Remove a key counter from Kaiso. Prevent all damage that would be dealt to target creature this turn. Whew, okay, I feel like we need a quick recap. Three mana, 2-2 two, two with uh, what's called Spirit Craft, which is an unnamed mechanic where when you cast a Spirit or Arcane spell, you do something. So three mana, 2-2, two, two, Spirit Craft to get key counters. When there are two or more, it flips into a 3-4 flyer. They can remove those key counters to prevent damage. It's still complicated, even after the recap. Uh, this card is hard to under, understand and evaluate. The flip condition here is easier than many of the other flip cards throughout the block. Um, white has a lot of spirit synergy. It has less arcane synergy, to be totally honest. In this case, I quite like the body that we flip into. Uh, three, four flyer with two combat trick tokens uh, is pretty good rate. It's the kind of thing that will pretty quickly close out a game. It'll make combat damage math pretty nightmarish for your opponent. So I really like the flip condition here. There's a whole cycle of these, uh, which may not be a surprise when you read it. There's a whole cycle of these key counter creatures where a mortal turns into a spirit based on getting two 
uh, key counters. I think the white one might be the best one. So the blue one counters spells unless the uh, caster pays two. The black one gives fear. The red one is a threaten effect. And the green one gives plus two, plus two, yawn. I think the white one is the best. That said, after that gigantic word storm, I also have to note, this card has just four gatherer comments uh, in like the 10 years that there were gatherer comments for this card. Oof. I can't find any mention of this in the history of Reddit. Like I... This card is pretty pretty forgettable and unlovable. And so I kind of wonder if I'm just talking myself into thinking it matters when maybe it's just like, you know what, who cares? These are convoluted and, and no one cares. I mean, th- there are a couple things that bother me about uh, this whole cycle of flip cards. The first one is it's just so slow. Like even if yeah. you have the spirits to get key counters on, on Faithful Squire, I mean, what turn are you doing that on? Like five or six or seven even to the point where you can flip it into Kaiso and then you end up with a... A uh, three four. Yeah, it's true. The w- one thing I will say for it that's kind of surprising in this time is that it flips at end step instead of upkeep, which feels impossibly generous for <laughs> for Kamigawa era. <laughs> it does, but I kind of think that might be because it's so hard to flip them. <laughs> they you know had to do that. You know what I mean? Like they're so not that good. Yeah, I mean, imagine getting the two key counters on your faithful squire and then having it die on your opponent's next turn <laughs> while you're waiting for it to flip. That's actually another thing that that bothers me about the design of these. Not that I think this change would make it better, but the fact that it has to flip when you have two or more key counters on there. No, no, it says you may flip it. It's a may. Oh, you may flip it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, if I you like want, it you can keep then. it as a gray Yeah, you could keep for... charging it up. <laughs> uh, that does point to one of the problems with pretty much all flip cards, which is if you're not, if you're not familiar with the flip cards, you may be thinking that we're talking about a transform card and we're saying the wrong word. Like you flip the whole card over and it's double-faced. That is not true. So the, this is a predecessor technology to double-faced cards. So the entire card is is fit on the front ha- front face of the card. And so the art is this teeny little postage stamp with two pictures crammed into it. Each of the text boxes are like half the size of a normal magic box. It's super, super crowded and confusing. And one of the consequences of that physical design constraint is that basically almost every front half of a flip card in the set doesn't do anything except tell you how it flips. And this is no exception. So like Faithful Squire doesn't get any abilities. He doesn't even get like Bushido 1 or Vigilance or anything. He's just a Gray Ogre and a double designated Gray Ogre at that. And so if you never do flip this, the feel bads here are very real. It's just a bad, really bad creature. <laughs> That's a great point that the, the just the formatting of these cards means that the the unflipped state basically has no space to tell you anything other than how to flip it. Yeah, there's like a, a cycle in champions where they flip, they do, they like tap to do something. Like, uh, what's the black one that we both love? Uh, uh, that that shreds your opponent hand. Uh, hand, what is that? Oh yeah, um, I think the Nizumi flips into stab whisker. The yeah. odious, I think. Stab. I hear us both. Yeah, Nizumi, Nizumi short, short thing. thing. Yeah, so right. he, he forces yeah. your opponent yeah. to discard. So that's that's kind of an exception and a little more interesting. But yeah, for the most part, especially with this cycle, because you've got that that spirit craft trigger description on the first line of the unflipped state, and then you've got this key counter business, there's just no room for it to be anything but a gray ogre. You know, actually, this this is an example where if they... One of the weird things about this block is that they didn't keyword the whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell thing is just spirit craft. If they had keyworded that, and instead of said may put a key counter, just said spirit craft put a key counter on faithful squire they could have fit uh, another line of rules text on all of these yeah i don't we don't know if they actually would have added 
any other keywords. Yeah, that's true. They probably would have said, this is already plenty. Yeah, this is, this this is too much. Um, hmm. Why is that? Sorry, before we get to rating this, why is, I get why the may flip it. I don't really get why may put a key counter. Like what circumstance would you not want to put a key counter on here? That is a, a great question. What what key counter punishes exist out there? I don't think there is one. It could be, there's like a thing in organized play where if you miss a mandatory trigger, you face like game sanctions, like you can take a game loss. Whereas if you miss an optional mm. trigger, you don't. So that might've been some kind of organized play consideration there. Hmm. That's interesting. You see what I'm saying? Because it's like, if you miss your own beneficial trigger, but even then, I think if it's a beneficial trigger... I'm not, I'm getting out of my depth here, but all that to say, I just make this a must. Like just may just seems like totally unnecessary here. Yeah. So where, where do we land on faithful squire and Kaiso? <sighs> I had it as a meh one X and I think that's mostly guilt. Like I, I feel like flip cards, this was their only block. I feel a sort of um, protective um, instinct towards all of them. Mm-hmm. That said, I think this is pretty bad. It's like a very conditional, gray ogre that turns into a somewhat above rate creature. So I, I could be persuaded that meh one X is just too generous. Yeah. I, I have it as an Instacut, but part of me wants to have at least one of these key flip cards in, and maybe it does, maybe it should be this one. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell we have some very strong feelings. Maybe, I just, maybe we just need to cut uh, it. Then. It's such a boring card. I think we should just cut it. I think the All fact right. that we're struggling to feel any emotion tells me this doesn't really need to be in the cube. Yeah, if we're trying to talk ourselves into having it, we probably into should. Into a meh. <laughs> All right, let's 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 talk about a card that I think we feel a lot more favorable about. Final Judgment. Four white-white for a sorcery. Exile all creatures. This used to be just the most awe-inspiring card to me back in the day. Kind of like Day of Destiny, the name, the art, the flavor text are, they just all hit for me. The flavor text is, the clashing warriors turned to face Okagachi, the greatest kami, and their sigh of awe was their last breath. And the the art shows Okagachi, this gigantic serpent god, looming over this this battlefield and uh, obviously about to destroy everyone on it. It's just like, the the kind of card that that creates this this sense of you know majestic power that I think Kamigawa is so effective at. Yeah, I think this is an example of like one of the things that's kind of remarkable about Magic of the rules text here is like in the modern words like it's like three or modern rules templating it's like three words right it's like exile all creatures and somehow the combination of that clean but super powerful effect and this sort of awe inspiring art like it does create this feeling of awe from a little like three inch piece of cardboard, which is, which is kind of remarkable when you think about it. Yeah. This, this card for me is one of the iconic, certainly arts in the whole block. Like I love the way Okagachi just looms so large that you, it actually takes a second or two to realize there are even human figures in the art. Yeah. And, and the way that Okagachi doesn't look particularly violent or malicious or even that interested, it's just sort of the effect of, of his passage or you know, of his interest or something, you know, like something, there's just something so epic about this. It makes it makes you feel very small. Mm-hmm. The simplicity of this card is a little bit like Omniscience that we talked about in uh, the seven plus mana enchantments yeah, episode, yeah, part yeah. one. You know, very very simple card text that you know still manages to create this this great sense of of power. Um, mm-hmm. 
looking at this card now, it's it's kind of hard to not you know compare it unfavorably to a card like Farewell. But I think this definitely has a place in R-Cube, both just as like an awesome card and the only unconditional board wipe in the whole block. Yeah, rate-wise, this card is pretty bad, right? It's like, Wraths are a funny thing where like the difference between a four-mana Wrath and a five-mana Wrath is gigantic. Like a four-mana Wrath can be almost oppressive. They've avoided them in standard pretty much for the longest time. But a five-mana Wrath is usually a bit too slow for most formats. And so a six-mana Wrath is like really definitely a bit too slow for most formats. Um, But our, our cube is slow. This is our only wrath. And there are a lot of graveyard shenanigans in this block. And so I think this does go up. The exile rather than destroy is pretty darn relevant in this case. It is kind of ironic that this is the final judgment of uh, the head of all the spirits. Uh, and this most punishes the spirits. There's something there that feels a little funny to me. Right. It's it's the soul shift that suffers here, not the mortals. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of that, like, why is this card not arcane? We, oh, that's a great question. I yeah, have a theory I mean, we about saw it. Plenty of cards like that in in champions where we're like, why why is this not an arcane spell? What's what's your theory? My theory is this was intended to be the new Wrath of God. So they kind of, this is around mm-hmm. the time that Wizards stopped putting Wrath of God into every core set, uh, and I think they were trying to like power down board wipes, make creature decks more viable. So they gave this a purposefully generic name and no arcane subtype. The only flaw in that plan is this card is actually just not good enough um, to uh, to see play in like a standard format. I, I like that theory. I think that makes sense. Like it's notable to me that this is a, a like a major wrath in the history of the game, and it's only been reprinted once in the list, and it's still like two dollars. Uh, yeah. To me, that tells you a lot about its power level. Yep. Uh, one thing I thought was fun is this is actually one of the first exile wraths in the history of the game. Uh, and basically the first unconditional normal one in white. So I'll um, put a link in the show notes to all of the exile-based removal I could find in the game in the history of printing. This is only the 24th white card ever printed that exiles a thing. Um, and weirdly, a huge proportion of those before this were just targeting enchantments. Don't ask me why that is. More importantly, or more uh, relevantly, this is only the third unconditional exile thing uh, in the history of the game, exile all creatures thing in the history of the game. So the first one is a card called Apocalypse from Tempest, which is, wait for it, red, uh, two R R R exile all permanents, discard your hand. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, interesting EDH troll card. And then in Urza's Destiny, we have False Prophet, two WW22 Cleric, that when he dies, you exile all creatures. And that's it. And then you get to this, and this is the first kind of real white exile-based wrath, which I think is kind of cool. Wow. Yeah, kind of a historic card. Yeah, it is. And as a side note, um, that also led me to a really weird... There is technically one other white card that exiles all creatures, kind of, from the dark, which I'm just going to share because it's so weird. It's called Martyr's Cry, WW Sorcery. Exile all white creatures. For each creature exiled this way, its controller draws a card. So... Just chew on that for a bit, because that is one weird card. Hmm. Some pretty great art there, too. <laughs> yeah, the art's amazing. Oh, uh, we should have mentioned from the start, because we keep talking about art. Uh, if you scroll down in the show notes, there's going to be a link that's like, see all cards from today's episode. If you just click on that, it'll uh, let you see all the cards as we talk about them, if you want to follow along. Mm-hmm. So how do you rate Final Judgment? This is an auto-include for me, just on kind of iconicness alone. 
I kind of forgot that we hadn't rated because I just sort of assumed this was going in the cube. Yeah, auto include sounds good. All right. Uh, probably just one of them, right? I, th- I think just one, yeah. All right. Okay, so we talked about the key counter mortal flip card cycle. Let's go to our next weird cycle of the block. Genju of the Fields, W, Enchantment Aura, Enchant Planes, buckle up, two mana. Until end of turn, Enchanted Planes becomes a 2-5 white spirit creature with, whenever this creature deals damage, you gain that much life. It's still a land. When Enchanted Plane is put into a graveyard, you may return Genju of the Fields from your graveyard to your hand. Okay, so one mana aura that turns the planes into a thing that can become a 2-5 with lifelink for two mana. And this comes back if the creature dies. I really like this cycle. There's a whole cycle of these Genjus. There's one for each color, uh, plus a five color one. It's a super rare and unique effect, more rare than you would think. There's actually just 16, um, as far as I could tell, auras in magic uh, that turn lands into creatures in this way for like a mana cost. Hmm. Um, six of those are in Kamigawa blocks. So these five uh, normal Genju and the one five color Genju. Um, two more are in Neo, which I think is interesting. I wonder if that's a, a callback to the original Kamigawa block. One of the things I really like about these is that this gives you an insurance against two for ones. When the Enchanted Plains dies, you get the Genju back. And so your, your risk here is pretty low. Uh, interestingly, across those 16 cards in Magic, that insurance policy thing is surprisingly common. So only two of the 16 auras that turn thing lands into creatures. You st- sticking with me here, Connor? I, I think <laughs> so. Two- so far, so good. Okay, I'm going to link to that list of 16, by the way. Only s- two of those 16 don't give you some kind of insurance policy, which I think is interesting that Wizards has always recognized that. If you can name which of those two uh, cards that enchant aura lands and turn them into creatures conditionally don't <laughs> save the creature, um, <laughs> then you win the magic trivia prize forever. Uh, I think no magic player could name those. Those are living terrain in a wink in the ancient. Okay, okay. After that uh, really long, um, weird <laughs> side trail, uh-huh. I really like this card. I, to me, it's just like a thing. It's like a two five. It's basically a weird conditional 2-5 with lifelink. And I think a weird conditional 2-5 with lifelink is actually pretty okay. And I think this is a pretty iconic Kamigawa-ish cycle. Uh, The fact that you get this back when the creature dies, to me, makes this just totally solid and playable. Even if I ignore the fact that I really would struggle to cut these because the Genju to me are so iconic. I pretty much agree with all of that. But these, all of these Genju feel like trap cards to me. It sort of looks to my untrained eye or it looked back in the day, like you could slap this on a planes on turn one and then turn two, you've got a two five lifelinker, technically possible. But in actuality, what you get is a two five on turn three if you want to be able to actually attack with it because you need to tap two other land and not the planes that this is enchanting to have an untapped creature. Uh, And then you're not doing anything else on that turn three. I agree that like a 2-5 lifelinker is pretty decent, and I agree that this is a, an iconic cycle and just a really unusual effect and something that I want to see, but it does sort of feel like a trap. I think it's a little bit of a trap. I don't think these I don't think this card is great, to be clear. I do think it's like good enough. I think it does a lot of what the spirit white deck wants to do, which is to say it basically it's really good at slowing down the game. Like a 2-5 lifelinker is a great way to kind of blunt your opponent's uh, aggro strategy uh, and kind of slowly just stall them out until you start dropping big creatures. And so I like it as a role player 
um, in the white spirits deck in particular. Although, of course, unfortunately, this doesn't interact with spirit craft or soul shift at all, which is a little bit awkward. Yeah. I, one other thing that makes it a little bit trappy is that it has to be a planes that you're enchanting. And there aren't that many like good non-basic lands within Kamigawa itself. Of course, we're bringing some in from outside, as we discussed in our kind of mana base episode. Um, but the fact that this has to enchant a planes makes it kind of tricky, too. I think that's a great point because um, we purposefully eschewed the kind of better dual lands, right? We don't have the OG duels. We don't have shock lands. We don't have tri lands. So mm-hmm. none of our non-basic fixing lands actually, I think, except uh, the Amonkhet cycling lands, none of them have land types. So you're right. This is awkward um, if you're a two color deck. Your mana base may struggle to really support this. But you only need one, right? You don't need like five planes to make this work. It's not like you need to pump white mana in to animate the thing you just need one planes yeah yeah that's fair so how do you how do you rate it i have it all the way up at playable which i think is generous i think i was kind of prepared to argue with you about it and so i, I went in hot with a playable 1x i've got a i've got it at meh 1x just because i feel i feel burned by it by by having thought of it when i was younger as a, a turn two two five life linker and then realizing that it doesn't work that way it's just a grievance. Uh, I understand grievance, your grievance meh. rating. I'm willing to go to meh. Okay. I do struggle to imagine cutting this cycle. Like they're so innocuous. Maybe maybe we'll just run into them more in playtesting and find they really do. They really are terrible. But I think we're gonna find that they're an okay like twenty third card. Like the last card you don't cut will be Genju of the Fields. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Maybe it's the last card you do cut. I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe we'll we'll find out. Let's try it. What do you think of the art here, Connor? Before we move on. Uh, it's got some strong trypophobia vibes. Oh boy, howdy does it! And I got a lot of trypophobia going on. Yeah, I, like it's it's a very even by Kamigawa standards, very strange looking creature in here. It's not very white looking to me or fieldish. No. You can't really tell like what does it have to do with the fields? Which which end of the Genju is which? Yeah, it's like something from Dune or something. Yeah. It's, it's a great worm. Pretty horrifying. Actually, all of the Genju, ironically, Genju of the Realm, which is like this weird toad guy, is the least horrifying. Most of the other Genju are pretty horrifying looking. Um, like I'm looking at Genju of the Fens here. He's actually also got a bit of trypophobia action going on. Yeah. Genju of the Spires is kind of like a, a monster from a horror movie. He's kind of wormy too. too. They're all pretty freaky. Hmm. Huh. You know what I'm realizing too, Connor? This is what? the only one of the five monocolored Genjus to never be reprinted. Oh, that's sad. Why is that? I don't think it's the worst of them. It doesn't seem that much worse than the others. I mean, it's not like these were printed in amazing things, but like Genju of the Fens got printed in two dual decks and a mystery booster. Genju of the Cedars, also in a dual deck. Genju of the Falls somehow made it all the way to M25. He hit the big leagues. Uh-huh. Um, which, I mean, seriously, M25, you couldn't find a more iconic Betrayer's card than this to put in. And Genju, Genju of, the of the Spires. also in M25. Weird. Why did Genju of the... Sorry, we're just on side notes here, but like, why did Genju of the Spires get a promo printing in Arena 2005, by the way? It has like a foil promo printing. Who knows? Why? Why is Genju of the Spires getting so much love? I don't know. We'll have to decide when we get to the Genju of the Spires. All right, uh, Meh 1X for our tryptophobic, trypophobia-inducing friend. That's hard to say. Trypophobic Genju. Trypophobic Genju. That's actually, that would be a good card name. Okay. That's good. All right. 
Next up, we've got Heart of Light. 2W for uh, an aura that enchants creatures. Prevent all damage that would be dealt to and dealt by enchanted creature. So this is kind of a weird, more expensive pacifism or arrest type effect. I thought that this was just really bad at first glance, but maybe, maybe it has some uses in Kamigawa. Like you could put it on your own sort of small weenie creature to turn it into like a permanent chump blocker because it still allows attacking and blocking, but just prevents all damage to the creature. Or maybe you Mm. stick it on a creature with like an important non-damage ability to protect it from something. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe you run it in your enchantment loving EDH deck. Uh-huh. Yeah, to me this is like a crappier version of Arrest. Arrest being I think it was originally printed in Mirrodin. Arrest being two and a W enchant creature, enchanted creature can't attack or block, and its activated abilities can't be activated. I don't know. The fact that this doesn't really shut down the creature that much is pretty damning for me. I still have it at like a meh one X, but that's only because white removal is at such an incredible premium in this set that maybe this gets there. But there's a lot of cases where this isn't going to do what you want. Like a lot of the legends, for example, have abilities that are really relevant. Like, for example, the next card we're going to talk about, Hokori Dust Drinker, just as a random example. Or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Maloku the Clouded Mirror or the Dragons or Oyobi who Split the Heavens, on and on, right? Like there's a lot of cases where this isn't really removing the creature. Because the damage isn't the thing you were scared of. Well, see, that I I kind of like that about it because you can put Heart of Light on your own creature to turn it into a. Permanent I know, but that's like a, you just two for one yourself. Maybe, but I mean, you 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 put this on uh, Bushi Tenderfoot, and it can block forever. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Or you could have just put one good creature in instead of the Bushi Tenderfoot or this thing. But there, but there aren't that many good creatures in Kamigawa. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Um, uh, before we get to decide on a rating, I also really don't like the art here very much. It's like a white ghostly lady uh, surrounded by bugs. I don't really get. I don't really get the bugs. Is she is the heart of light protecting her against the bugs? Her heart is pure enough to protect against the bugs. I think so, and I, I feel like being surrounded by bugs is kind of a theme in Kamigawa art. <laughs> it's so true. There are so many bugs in this set. Uh, at least this one's not by Ron Spencer. If it was, That's true. The, can you the imagine what be, Ron Spencer would have done with this? Oh my god, they'd be way bigger and way grosser. Yeah, why are there so many? But why is Kamigawa so determined to trip trip my phobias? <laughs> Two cards in a row here. I know, Gone from holes to bugs. I know. Well, plus final judgment. You know, um, it's kind of raising some existential fears for me. Mm, yeah, yeah. Fear you know of, what happens? Fear of exile. After this, yeah, after fear of judgment. exile rather than death. Right. Um, hmm. I don't know. Mail one X or Instacut. I I can't even care what we rate a card that this, that's this bland. Yeah. I mean, I had it in, at Instacut, but I feel like I've talked myself up to a Mail one X. Let's try okay. it out. White doesn't have enough removal. Let's give it a shot. Sounds good. Okay. Let's go on to one of my favorite cards in the entire block. Hokori Dust Drinker. Two W W two two legendary creature spirit. Lands don't untap during their controller's untap steps. At the beginning of each player's un- upkeep, that player untaps a land he or she controls. Okay, so Hokori is just a four mana two two that is Winter Orb, um, you know, which is an iconic, vicious card from early Magic. Winter Orb has a pretty strong competitive history in the early game. 
uh, because you can break the symmetry through things like artifact mana, right? Your opponent is relying on lands for mana, like a sucker. You're running, I don't know, uh, I guess back in the day, you're running Moxin and all these other kind of artifact lands. And your opponent is like crying because they can only untap one thing, but now you're untapping all your things. Uh, and that's pretty cool. Or you just reach a point where you don't care. And the uh, the Winter Orb acts almost like a Armageddon where your opponent's lands are all tapped down. You've got, you're beaten down with a couple of, I don't know, I guess back in the day, Savannah Lions uh, and your opponent is just crying because they can't deal with them. Uh, there's a lot of crying in my description of Okori, which I think is appropriate. It's a card that's intended to create tears. The only mm -hmm. problem with that is, and I, I love that kind of card. The problem with that is I don't think there's that much in Kamigawa that really supports doing that. Like there is no artifact mana, pretty much all the mana in the block with the exception of a few really marginal green creatures is based around lands. And so I don't know how well Hikori can actually act like an asymmetrical effect. And white is not a super good aggro color in this cube. I mean, no, no uh, color is particularly good at aggro, um, but you know, white, white's curve gets best at around two and especially three mana. So uh, I just don't know if Hikori gets there as much as I love him. Yeah. I mean that, that, was the thing for me like that this this kind of effect this this trolly passive aggressive uh like we're not playing magic anymore seemingly is, symmetrical but not right, really right it really fun in theory in the cube or really fun for the person playing it in theory in the cube i just don't think hokori does anything except like stop the fun well and my worry is not that it's that he doesn't stop the fun well enough either <laughs> But I mean, he stops the fun for everybody. Yeah, right. Because because you don't have the the tools to actually then close out the game or demonstrably take over the game as the Hokori player, right? You're both just kind of grinding and slow and weird. Exactly. And you know, you yeah, you you don't have the the follow up to it or the setup. You're not gonna unless you get exactly the the green cards that you need to maybe generate some mana from creatures or some artifacts or something like there's just not enough support within the block for Hikori to do what we want him to do. I'm worried. You're right. I still have a, have him as an auto include though, because I like this card so much. <laughs> I have a, have him as an Insta cut because I think he's just oh, going to no. be like stopping all the fun when he comes down. Oh dear. I mean, maybe, maybe we can try it. I is build around appropriate. Yeah, I, it kind of is, except there's like, there's nothing to actually build There's around. There's nothing to make it work. <laughs> yeah, that's the unfortunate thing. I, I'm kind of okay with build around. Yeah, I, I can see that. You know, maybe maybe we put him in, we try him out, and then he pops up in a game. The game just stops. and Or he does nothing. Happy. My or worry is honestly nothing. that it's like he doesn't exist. Right. Because the other thing about this that's awkward is like, this isn't really... Like, four is starting to get a little bit late in the day to do this. I mean, obviously Armageddon costs four, but Armageddon is a much more definitive, like, turn the game off button than this guy is and it doesn't cost double white um right so i'm kind of obviously it would have been terrible for hikori to be say a i don't know a ww21 or a 1ww32 or something but i kind of think he probably needs to be to to make the grade eh. before before we render final judgment this doesn't see a ton of commander play like as a commander it's only 225 uh decks although hats off to every one of those trolls um you are welcome in the clock spinning community. Uh, but like he appears in a decent number of decks. It appears in like 3000 decks. Most notably, it's fairly commonly played with Derevi Imperial Tactician, who 
Uh, whenever he and en- uh, whenever Derevi enters the battlefield or a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, you may tap or untap target permanent. And so, of course, Derevi is pretty awesome with the Cory because it lets you keep your opponent's stuff more tapped down, tap down their mana rocks, for example, and it lets you untap your land. So that's that's a pretty cool set of interactions. Yeah, I like that. Unfortunately, no, no Derevi in our cube. <laughs> Can you imagine? One other beef with Okori after my love fest is there's a lot of cards like this in the block, uh, spirits like this in the block, but this is another spirit that is absolutely flying in its art or is literally a cloud, but does not have flying. And that just yes. drives me bananas. It should totally be flying. And I think yes. it would be fine if it was flying too. It wouldn't be overpowered. It would be, it would actually, I think, put him kind of in the right band of power level. I I totally agree because then you know you've got that you've stopped the game and now you have a a threat a small one yeah a little a dinky threat clock, yeah yeah a little you know some kind of threat yeah and it's kind of like if your opponent can answer a two two flyer in that environment or situation then serves them right you know yeah that's on there <laughs> yeah uh can, we we aren't errating cards but I, honestly it kind of makes me want to write flying on this thing with a sharpie and just keep it in the cube like that yeah it'd be less confusing if it had flying. Yep, like so many other spirits here. Yes. So should we go with build around for Corey? We should, but I also think uh, you you need to talk about the secret lair drop thing that you're oh, glossing over. I I'd almost forgotten about that. Hokori actually got some secret lair drop love just this year. Um, there's a really cool piece by an artist named Yuko Shimizu, which depicts Hokori as basically a, a big, giant swirly tornado with a, a huge red fanged mouth. It's I don't know how to describe it. It looks almost like a like a wood block and just just really cute, actually, and fun. <laughs> yeah, it seems like part of the role of this show is for you to point out secret layer drops that I missed that make mm-hmm. me feel bad about missing them. Uh, and I definitely feel bad about missing this one. Although happily, this card is just a dollar in the secret layer version. So I probably need to just get one because it's yeah. super cool art. We we should probably pick that up. Uh, yeah, I'm fine with the build around one uh, X. I don't know that it'll stick, make it all the distance, but we we can hope. Yeah, let's let's try it. Okay, next up we've got Hundred Talent Strike, one white mana for an instant arcane target creature gets plus one plus zero and gains first strike until end of turn. You can also splice onto arcane by tapping an untapped white creature you control. So this is kind of a a cool card, a, a nifty combat trick that has an unusual splice cost, at least compared to the splice cost that we've seen so far. Instead of paying mana, you are tapping uh, a white creature you control. Not that, I you know, not that you'd have to pay a lot of white mana to just cast this. But I I don't think this is a very good combat trick. What do you think about it? Uh, I think you're being a little bit harsh on it. Like, admittedly, I have a soft spot for combat tricks, um, and I've also got a soft spot for this totally crazy art. Um, super trippy, even by Kamigawa standards. Like, are those? It looks like there's Powerball balls floating yeah, around. It, it. I don't the know. Art feels very Yu-Gi-Oh to me. <laughs> it is kind of Yu-Gi-Oh, but in a great way. But I, I don't know. I kind of respect this. Like, I think first strike is probably the second best ability to have on a bad combat trick right after death touch like first mm-hmm. strike wins combats admittedly plus one plus oh doesn't do a, a whole lot to help you get there mm-hmm. but the totally unique ability to splice by tapping a creature is pretty cool um and i do think puts this into a different i guess it what i think is it puts it into a territory where it's tough to evaluate and i'm kind of reluctant to cut it for that reason i feel like yeah this probably doesn't get there and unfortunately as i think you're about to point out about splice the, the problem is that you have to have an arcane spell to splice onto which is a big mm-hmm. problem but but 
it is kind of unique and interesting. I, I kind of want to stick a couple of these in here and see if it can do something. Mm, no, my, my issue, my issue with it is first, you need something to splice onto second to splice. You need to have another white, well, maybe you need to have another white creature available that you can tap to cast this onto your attacking creature or whoever you're actually targeting with a hundred talent strike. And then the, the combat trickiness, the, the sneak attack value of suddenly giving something first strike totally disappears after you have spliced this once. Right. Well, now your opponent knows you have the hundred talent strike. Yeah, but I feel like we have a philosophical disagreement here because I, I think you rate I think you rate sneakiness higher than I do. Of like, I don't care if it's sneaky. You know what? I want you to know it's coming. Like, I want you to feel scared that at any time I could give my creature first strike. Like, I think there's a deter. It's like a it's like a deterrent effect. It's like letting your opponent, uh, your enemy country, know about just how many missiles you have. Like. Mm-hmm. I mean, admittedly, the missile here is a plus one, plus O in first strike. So, I mean, it's not like it's not like the best missile in the world. It's a, it's a modest missile. I do think like the fact that it it doesn't require mana to do the splice is pretty interesting or would be if there was any way to cast the original arcane spell without. Gosh, argh. it just it doesn't quite yeah, work, does it? It's it's interesting, but it it to me, it feels almost like kind of another trap card because when I first read it, I'm like, oh, I can just like keep tapping other creatures I control and keep 100 talents striking. But then you need to actually have a, a new arcane spell every time you want to do that. And I think most of the time you're not going to have it. And when you do have that arcane spell, is it going to be one that you want to cast at the same time that you need the 100 talent strike, right? Like how many arcane spells are out there that you'd actually want to be casting at the time you would need to be splicing this strike well this is one of the most awkward things about this card is that um there's not because white is one of the worst arcane colors of the colors that get arcane spells um i think splice in general is a really tough mechanic for us because it's just been really hard to make it work in all our playtesting. i think in a retail draft environment you just have all these crappy commons that are going to be at the table whether anyone wants them or not right and so it's like if if it's open there's just going to be some arcane things and someone might, someone's going to have to pick them at some point in the draft. But in our environment, it's like we're raising the floor on power level and most of the arcane spells except Glacial Ray get left behind. But then if it's just Glacial Ray, that that doesn't work. Like arcane, I'm worried, is becoming a bit of a design pickle for us. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like without that arcane support, you know, 100 Talent Strike is just a, a one mana fairly lame combat trick like the splice i think is most of the time gonna just be completely irrelevant all right let's just insta cut it and move let's on let's cut it i'm sorry i'm sorry i get it connor i mean i think you're right it's just it's just sad yeah it, it's a, a tough truth <laughs> about kamigawa oh man all right let's go to indebted samurai three and a w for a two three human samurai He's got Bushido 1. This is actually our first Bushido card. So Bushido is whenever this blocks or becomes blocked, it gets plus 1, plus 1 until end of turn. And whenever a samurai you control dies, you may put a plus 1, plus 1 counter on a deaded samurai. I have this guy at a male 1x. I think this is like a totally decent curve filler. He's a 2-3 that fights as a 3-4, which for 4 mana is not great, but is not unreasonable in the low power environment of Kamigawa. Uh, And if he ever grows, he becomes like a totally... A reasonable threat. So I don't have a huge amount to say about this card, but I think it's pretty solid. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I've got it as a, a playable. You know, I think we have enough samurai in the cube, or or we will by the time we finish, to to make this viable with the plus one plus one counters. Yeah, 
just seems like a, a pretty solid samurai. Yeah. Uh, one interesting note is the artist here, Carl Critchlow, uh, was kind of an OG magic artist uh, who did a lot of art up until around 2011. And then he's one of these artists, we've been remarking on this a lot in the last couple episodes, I think, who then took like a 10 year break from magic and comes back in like 2020 and especially 2021, 2022 with a lot of pieces. I still don't have a theory about that, except maybe that magic is just putting out so many cards now that they need all the artists they can get. Um, but it's interesting. We've, uh, I remember in our seven mana enchantment episode too, we were noticing artists who we just hadn't seen for like a decade. And a lot of them seem to be getting pulled back into the game, which is, which is fascinating. Yeah. The, this art though, I, I have so little feeling about like it. The, the samurai, his pose just looks pretty awkward it's not really clear like what he is indebted to Mm -hmm. uh or you know like how this what looks like a pile of bodies behind him relates to that (laughs) yeah it's just kind of awkward against that connor i he also has like his arms are held weirdly far from his body Mm -hmm. i do have to ask you though you were you've been on record throughout the years as being extremely pro pauldron you know the piece of armor that covers your shoulder And this guy's got some serious pauldrons. I do love a pauldron, but I don't love these pauldrons. They're just, they're just sort of rectangles made of uh, like grass, grass, probably. Yeah. It's actually kind of uh, the onslaught clerics. You know, they all have this weird grass. See, I love the onslaught clerics. I love their, (laughs) I love their aesthetic. I love their aesthetic. (laughs) This, this guy's pauldrons just, they're not doing it for me. Okay, you you feel like he's just kind of ripping off their style, but he doesn't really understand it. Yeah, yeah, his pauldron game just isn't there. He doesn't really have any kind of figure either. It's kind of like his body's totally. We're just we're just nagging this guy. Let's move on. <laughs> no, let's keep going. <laughs> what do you rate him? I have him in a meh one X. Uh, I have him at playable. I don't feel strongly about it. I kind of feel like one X might be low. Like we'll see in the final queue, but I could totally see having two of these. It's just a decent mid range threat. Why don't we go wild and? Call it playable 2x. How about we go wild and call it meh 2x? Okay. All right. I can live like with I that. Like, I think if you think, if I think about our meh rating, you know, part of the intent is that these are the flex cards that get cut from the cube or get added based on the final shape of the thing. Like, no one would cry if we were like, we have a Champions Kamigawa block cube, but it doesn't have any indebted samurai. I don't think anyone would be like, no, I love that card. <laughs> that's, that's fair. All right. Okay. Next up, we've got Kami of False Hope. One white mana for a 1-1 spirit. Sacrifice Kami of False Hope to prevent all combat damage that would be dealt this turn. So this is a a pretty popular card in a lot of kind of recursion-oriented EDH decks that use it as this sort of fog on a stick. You sack the Kami of False Hope to protect yourself from lethal or do whatever combat trickiness you want to be doing, uh, and then you just keep getting it back over and over again and have this constant fog effect you can use. That said, it has never been reprinted ever, uh, despite its popularity and I think sort of general okayness and actually really cool art. Within the cube, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I agree about the cube and that this card is super cool. Like It does something pretty much unique in the game. Uh, the art to me is some of the best art in the... Like this art is... This block is just full of incredible art. And I think this is one of the more incredible ones. Like if you just zoom in on it, you know, obviously the figure is cool. Like it's it's humanoid, but also clearly alien and spirit-like. Um, we've got these kind of yin-yang symbols that I think sort of symbolize the spirits and the humans and the opposition between them, but also potential balance, yada, yada. And then in the background, you've got like these two samurai on the left facing off against this kind of wacky 
multi-eyed spirit monster on the right. Uh, it's just a really, it's a really cool piece of art. I love this card. Yeah, he's he's the Kami is sort of standing in like between the battle lines of these humans and Kami, it looks like. And there's like blood on one side of him and I guess green spirit blood on the other spirit side of goo, him. Yeah. <laughs> spirit ooze, ectoplasm. Yeah, so the, the art is, is awesome. What do you think of it? for our purposes here. Oh, I think it's pretty dicey. There's not a lot that lets you exploit this. So this seems to see a fair amount of, uh, this has seen some EDH play, for example, in Celestial Kirin decks as like a ultra trolly way to kind of keep beating down with your opponent. And definitely when you can recur this, it gets pretty cool pretty quick. Like there's some kind of turbo foggy, uh, I think modern lists even have played this. It's kind of like a fog forever kind of thing. Uh, in our queue, we don't really have that much recursion potential outside of Soul Shift. So I'm not really sure that it's good. And it's a one drop and one drops are usually terrible. That said, this might be the one one drop I'm willing to give some kind of chance to. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I'd, I'd like to try it just if only for its cool art and sort of unusual history as a Kamigawa common actually having some relevance in, in formats. Yeah, and a common that's like 16 bucks in foil now. I assume Whoa. mostly on the back of this amazing art. I don't know. Huh. So I had it as an Instacut. How high did you go in your rating? I went playable, but I think meh is probably more correct because this is probably in a lot of situations not doing a whole lot for you, but I'd still like to see him pop up now and then. Yeah, I'm fine with a meh. Uh, 2x seems okay. I I don't know that it's going to make it all the way there, but 2 seems fine. Okay, let's go with meh 2x. Boom. All right, let's talk about Kami of the Tattered Shoji. Kami of the Tattered Shoji is four and a W for a two five spirit. Whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell, Kami of the Tattered Shoji gains flying until end of turn. Uh, okay. Um, I, I my notes on this basically just say whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell, you are reminded the Kami of the Tattered Shoji doesn't already have flying, despite having a terrible stat line and the art showing it like basically about to take off and fly. I really dislike this card. It's one of those Kamigawa cards that, yeah, it might get there on raid. Yeah, it might technically be playable in the format, but just I don't like how it's like confusing and deceptive on the face of it. I don't like how it doesn't do anything that interesting. Like conditionally gaining flying is pretty boring. The thing that bums me out about this card is I think the art is pretty cool here. Like there's almost a mech vibe from this thing. Um, and the artist yeah. here, Shishizaru, turned in like a bunch of bangers, like this card, Floating Dream Zubera, Jugon the Rising Star, Kodama of the North Tree, Bounteous Kirin, Even the Odds. All of these cards have amazing art and are pretty bad. And I'm thinking he just left because he was tired of Wizards wasting his cool art. Yeah, that, that seems fair. I I don't hate the sort of tie-in between the the effect and the art here. You know, you've got this Kami of with these tattered wings, these its wings are shoji, which is like a door or a window on a like a hmm. lattice frame. So I, I kind of like the idea of it, like sometimes having flying, or it, you know, it's this it's this sort of feeble, weakened kami that occasionally is able to take to the air. But but the fact that you get sometimes flying on a five mana two five body is just reprehensible. It's pretty damning. I think we just got to cut this. Yeah, sounds good. Instacut. All right. Okay, we have another Kami here. Kami of the Honored Dead. 5WW for a 3-5 spirit with flying. Whenever Kami of the Honored Dead is dealt damage, you gain that much life. It also has Soul Shift 6. And I think this is our first Soul Shift card 
in Betrayers. So just as a reminder, uh, Soul Shift is when the creature is put into a graveyard from play, uh, you can return a spirit card with converted mana cost X or less from your graveyard to your hand. So when Kami of the Honored Dead dies, you get a spirit back from your graveyard with uh, CMC 6 or less. So this is a card that I don't think I ever saw back in the day or had given any real thought to before the moment that I rated it. It has this strange and as far as I can tell almost unique reverse lifelink kind of ability uh, where instead of you gaining life based on how much damage it deals you gain life based on how much damage it is dealt and as far as I could tell there were only two other much older cards that have this kind of ability yeah that's kind of the most notable thing about this right I feel fine about this thing. It's, you know, to me, it's like a, I mean, it's a seven mana, three, five flyer. So, you know, that's not really that good. Uh, but the soul shift is is helpful here. I, I The reverse lifelink to me is like kind of cute, but, I, I, you know, I think in general, you'd much rather just have real lifelink on this. Like, I can't imagine too many scenarios where you'd prefer this weird ability versus just every time you attack your opponent and it doesn't get blocked, you get some life. I don't know. This, this is pretty mad. This is like a poster child for mad to me. Yeah. It it does feel pretty. I mean, the the soul shift definitely helps, but I don't think this is anything more than a mat. Yeah, I think the most awkward thing to me about this is the seven mana. Like seven is hard to get to. There's just this huge gulf between five and six, and especially six and seven, and then seven and eight mana. Where there's a lot of games where you never see seven mana, or you don't see it till you know turn twelve or turn thirteen or whatever. And like I don't know. By the time this thing comes down, in a lot of cases, I think it's not really doing what you uh, want it to. Uh, the best example of that is going back to uh, Champions of Kamigawa. There's a card called uh, Vine Kami, which is a seven mana, four, four, soul shift six with uh, Menace. And that thing, every time I've drafted it, it disappoints me because I'm like, I just don't get to cast this. And then by the time I do, no one, it doesn't matter. And I, I do think something similar might be true here, but I still think one of these is fine. I think this is mostly held up for me by the uniqueness of it and the like super Kamigawa-ish art and name. Yeah, the the art is definitely very Kamigawa. You've first off, you've got a Ganjo, the like the big castle that I guess is the the seat of power for Kanda. Uh, that is prominently in the background, and then the Kami itself is this really weird. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like it looks like some sort of bodily organ surrounded like a blood clot or something. Yeah, like a blood clot surrounded by wormy things and. Wormy wing feathery moth appendages, wings, maybe silk silk moth silk worm wing things. Uh, yes, some silk worm wing things, and then a, a sword right in the middle. So very very strange. And masks like laughing, almost like theater masks hovering around it. Yeah, yeah, definitely <laughs> some art that could only exist in the set. Absolutely, which, you know that's that counts for something. Yeah, so you know let's let's keep one of them around. Yeah, uh, Mad One X feels perfect. All right. Okay, let's talk about Kentaro, the Smiling Cat. One and a W for a legendary human samurai. Two, one. Bushido, one. You may pay X rather than pay the mana cost for samurai spells you play, play, where X is that spell's mana value. Okay, it's a weird card. So it's a two mana, two, one, Bushido, one. And then he basically makes all your samurai colorless. Uh, I think this is pretty darn good. Um, there's a most of the samurai are white, but there is a smattering of red samurai, and then I think just a handful in the other colors across the block. And one of the questions we've had throughout champions is like, 
can the samurai deck be two colors? Like, can you, is, are the red samurai good enough to be worth splashing? And then Kentaro says, no problem. I'm like a mana fixing spell in white, admittedly just for your samurai. Uh, and I think like, honestly, that's plus being a two one with Bushido one is basically good enough to get there in this, in this set. So yeah, I, I like uh, Kentaro. I have him as an auto include. I can't say I have like passionate feelings about him, but, uh, I like that he does something pretty unique and he kind of acts like mana fixing in white, which is interesting from a design perspective. Yeah, I I really love this card. The I mean the just being a two mana two one with Bushido one is is already pretty decent as a rate. And then the the fact that this lets you get into those red and also black samurai. There are a few black samurai in the block. I think there's one green samurai even. Uh and I, I just love the idea of Kentaro letting you splash into these other samurai and mana fixing in this very, very specific, very thematic kind of way. His flavor text sort of alludes to that too. It says the bonds of Bushido will draw the dishonored back someday and I will be there waiting, which kind of, you know, alludes to samurai from other colors coming back. But the the way it ends with, I will be there waiting and his art showing him like holding this, this <laughs> in a very threatening way. Kind of he doesn't look like he's, he's welcoming you. Does yeah. He? He's, he's not, he's not there waiting uh, to bring them back into the fold. He may be waiting to do something else to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also don't like that. He's his name says he's smiling, but he's not really smiling in the art. He's not really smiling in the art. I know. And uh, <laughs> that's that's a great point. He's also not a cat. Good, good point. That's this card is all kinds of confusing, Connor. It is, but I this this art I I hate in general. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, we're we're on record in this podcast as being huge fans of Donato Giancola's photorealism. So why are you uh, why are you hating on this art? <sighs> because of the photorealism. There's there's another Donato Giancola piece in Champions. I think it's Hisoka, like a blue wizard that's extremely photorealistic, especially the face. And I just find it really jarring. And in this this art in particular, the color of his face, he's very pale. It stands out really, really starkly from this very dark blue background and these very dark clothes that Kentaro's wearing. And there's just something about the way that like his face is framed and sort of like floating in this this dark shapeless mass of the rest of the piece of art that like really doesn't work for me it looks a little bit like it's superimposed on the uh on the art doesn't it It doesn't it doesn't kind of meld uh nicely together it doesn't and and the background doesn't like tell any kind of story about this this legendary samurai it doesn't give him any kind of background any place (laughs) exactly it's just like swirls swirls of uh, they're nice swirls but feels uh very mismatched and contextless so even though i've joined you in kind of not loving this art i actually think i do like it the more i look at it i like that um huh what is it i like about it i like that it kind of tells a story um like he does have a sort of interesting ambiguous facial expression maybe he's a smiling cat in the same way that the mona lisa is smiling like is he smiling it's a little bit ambiguous um i'm intrigued that he looks incredibly young and he's a little bit androgynous as well um, and he's got this pretty cool armor. I don't know. There's something about it that, um, I don't know. It, it's not my favorite of his pieces, but it's at least striking and unique, uh, and, and like stands out within the set. So I have a soft spot even for the art here. Mm. All right. All right. You're not feeling it. What do you rate this thing as? I've got him as an auto include two X because I oh. really want this mana fixing to work. This samurai. I mana really fixing. like that. 
I really like that. We've been 1x on every legend except, uh, of course, the brothers Yamazaki. I like going 2x here, though. I think I think you're right. We can stand it in the samurai deck, and it will help make a bunch of other things work. That's clever. Yeah. Let's let's push this multicolored samurai deck a little bit more. All right. Auto-include 2x. All right. Next up, we've got Kitsune Palliator, uh, our first Kitsune of today's episode. Um, Kitsune Palliator is a 2W02 Fox Cleric that you can tap to prevent the next one damage that would be dealt to each creature and each player this turn. So the first thing I want to say about Kitsune Palliator is that we're on episode 14 of Clock Spinning. We've looked at hundreds of Kamigawa cards, and I don't think we have ever mentioned that the Kitsune, as shown here, do not have mouths. You're right. How have we not mentioned that? It's one of the weirdest things about the set. Why don't the Kitsune have any mouths? Yeah, you're right. None of them have mouths. I have no idea. And of course, the Kitsune and Neon Dynasty, who look you know, much more like Star Fox characters, definitely do have mouths. Uh, these original ones, as far as I could tell, don't. This Kitsune, Kitsune Palliator, is also very rat-like to me in its art. Yes. He's got kind of a Nizumi-shaped face, these large rat-like ears. I, I really wonder what was going on with the uh, art direction of the Kitsune that made them look like this. I kind of like it, but it's it's weird for sure. I actually love this art. There's something about the color scheme, like the red, his like re- silly red hat and his gold and white robe that this, I get like a kind of Christmas vibe from this art. I don't, I struggle to explain why, but it's kind of like a rat from a Christmas story or something. Uh-huh. You know, all those Christmas rats from <laughs> children's books. <laughs> So it's like one of those classic Christmas rats. Yeah, it's one of those classic cartoon Christmas rats. And uh, I really and I think on a technical level, it's pretty it's a pretty beautifully realized piece. Like there's a ton of detail packed in here, but not in a way that's busy or distracting. Um, It's got an interesting dynamic pose. There's a pretty intense use of light uh, that I think is pretty well rendered across the figure like the light the bright light from the magic he's casting is kind of well lit across his face and robes and uh silly purple hat so we haven't talked about the card itself which is spoiler it's bad but i i really like the art it's just like a it's like a cute christmas magic rat and i like him for that reason i love that i, I think there's rats in the nutcracker aren't there that's right that's probably what so I'm there thinking are of. christmas yes, rats it's, it's the nutcracker rats yes you're totally right Kitsune Palliator is is the Nutcracker card. Huh. Okay, what about what about the card itself here, Connor? Uh, like the stat line and abilities. I mean, a three mana zero two to me is just unforgivable. And like the this tap ability to just prevent one damage to everything is just stally and unfun and I think bad. We, we've talked in a number of episodes now about how cards back when we learned to play Magic sometimes felt like to a, a young teenager, like IQ tests, like... You're just yes. not smart enough to understand why preventing damage from everything is good. Preventing one damage from everything. <laughs> yes, but judging by the gatherer co- rating and the fact this has had five gatherer comments and no one has ever, as far as I can tell, about, tell said anything about this card in the history of the game, I, it wasn't a failed IQ test, Connor. This, I think this card is just bad and boring, minus uh, the adorable art. All right, I'm, I'm glad we can. Uh, I, I can rest easy knowing that I didn't miss anything with Kitsune Palliator. <laughs> yeah, just a just a really weird card. And an I don't know what it's me. meant to do. Yeah, no. it, totally Instacut. Totally agree. Okay, let's move on and talk about Mending Hands. W, instant. Prevent the next four damage that would be dealt to any target this turn. 
Okay, there. I felt like the easiest way to understand this card is just to list all the things to hate about it, um, because this is a hateful card in my view. <laughs> okay, um, so I'll just go quick, and then I'll let you expand on anything you want to expand on, or there, if there are things you like for some reason, you can say that too. So first, just let this also gain life. Like damage prevention is not a good mechanic, sort of across the board. This prevents one more damage than healing salve, which is notorious for being one of the most unplayable cards relative to its brethren in the history of the game. So just make this like a version of healing salve that prevents four or gains four life. That is not going to break anything. And it at least would be interesting. Second, why is this not arcane? Like, obviously it's not arcane because there's mortals in the art and boy, do I have more to say about these mortals in a second. But like, if this had been arcane, it at least would have had some role in the block. It's not like this was going to become some kind of staple in the history of the game that needed a generic name. Well, I guess they thought it was because for some reason this was reprinted in ninth edition. I don't know what they were thinking there. And then finally, to me, this is an egregious example of like unnecessary boob art where like for some reason our healer figure here is just leaning forward with this super low cleavage dress with her boobs like falling out. I don't know. It's just goofy. I I hate this card. Well, there's so much about the art to hate here. (laughs) Yeah, go go deeper. The pose of the- Embrace our hate. The pose of this this Kitsune healer is just completely baffling to me. So she's she's leaning forward, as Austin mentioned, but her hands, her mending hands, are reaching apparently backwards behind her toward these other two Kitsune, just super generic warrior guys. So she's apparently healing them or mending them uh, by like putting her hands backward behind her, I guess, so she can be facing the viewer and show us her cleavage. And then these other two guys she's healing, like one is sort of like looking over his shoulder, holding a couple swords. The other one is facing completely away from us for the only reason I can imagine for that is that the artist just got tired of, of painting faces. Kitsune faces. (laughs) It's just like, this guy's going to be looking the other way. He'll be backwards. So there's just so much about this art. That's like awkward and just, unpleasant to look at the only cool thing the only redeeming quality here is the headdress that the healer is wearing it's kind of cool <laughs> other than that i i just hate this card through and through and even then connor there's three pieces of headgear in this and hers is kind of cool but theirs are extremely silly theirs are terrible it's actually <laughs> their hats are kind of similar to your kitsune palliators hat that is just true saying. but he is cute and they are not they're just <laughs> he is- lame he is a Christmas rat. These guys are just like <laughs> We haven't really mentioned this yet, but another weird thing, I think we mentioned this in the previous, in the Champions review, but um, the art direction on both the Kitsune and the snake people, the Orachi, seems to have been pretty loose because basically every card, the Kitsune look totally different. Um, yes. Like if you just contrast this and Mending Hands, like they both have long ears and pointed uh, like kind of snouts and then everything else about them, they don't look like the same species, even a little bit. No. Another one of the many, many flaws in this art is it's not really clear why she needs to prevent damage because they don't really look like they're in a battle. No, they don't look getting harm. injured or anything. They're just kind of standing there. Yeah. What is she? What is she mending? Yeah. Also, the flavor text. Well, let's just finish dunking on this card and then we can cut it. The flavor text says, <laughs> okay. I can staunch their blood, mend their flesh and knit their bones, but I cannot restore their hope. Tenderhand Kitsune healer. There's no blood in this art. There's no flesh being mended. There's no bones being knit. And they don't they don't really look very hopeless either. Did do all Kitsune not have pupils? Have I just is this another thing we haven't Wait, noticed no or commented mouths, on? No pupils? You may be right. Let's go look at some form. I'm not other seeing kitsune. any pupils. Wait, that's weird. Wow. Hmm. 
Okay. Um, so uh, are, I'm taking it you're an Instacut on this one. This is a very easy Instacut. Yeah, and I just I just double checked. It looks like none of them have uh, pupils. I feel like we missed some homework here, so we may try to go figure out why the Katsune don't have mouths or pupils. Or if you know, like please let us know in the comments or by emailing us at clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com. I'm pretty mystified. Yeah, very curious about that. Also, none of them really look like foxes, just as a kind of final note. <laughs> okay. All right, let's get it. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us as we rendered final judgment on this day of destiny for betrayers of Kamigawa white cards. Oh boy. Uh, If you have feedback, thoughts, or memories to share about any of the cards or topics that came up today or about any Betrayers of Kamigawa cards that we haven't talked about yet, please let us know. You can email us at clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com or just comment on Reddit or YouTube. Uh, If you like the show, uh, consider subscribing if you aren't subscribed already uh, or you know, even better, share it with a magic playing friend. If you have some magic playing friend who really likes nerdy trivia about ancient formats, we'd love for you to share. Uh, you can also follow along as the cube evolves on Cube Cobra. Uh, just check out clockspinning.com for links to all of that stuff. Uh, next episode, join us as we uh, review perhaps more Betrayers of Kamigawa cards or perhaps take another detour into some thematic episode. Until then, though, I'm Austin. And I'm Connor. Thanks for listening. 